0: Welcome to Season 5 of Purposeful Empathy, a show dedicated to amplifying the voices of people from around the globe who understand that the world needs more empathy and are doing something about it. Today's episode was brought to you by Grant Heron International, an on-demand coaching provider for individuals and companies. Thanks for watching the show. Enjoy. Welcome to a new episode of Purposeful Empathy. Today I'm joined by Rob Volpe, who is an astute observer of life and a master storyteller who brings empathy and compassion to the human experience. As CEO of Ignite360, he leads a team of insights, strategy, and creative professionals serving the world's leading brands across a range of industries. As a thought leader in the role of empathy and marketing in the workplace, Rob frequently speaks on the topic at conferences, corporations, and college classes. His book, coming out in 2022, February of next spring, Tell Me More About That, Solving the Empathy Crisis One Conversation at a Time, is what we will uh, explore today. He's a graduate of Syracuse University's SI, Newhouse School of Public Communications, and lives in San Francisco with his husband and three cats, which we just spoke about. Welcome to the show, Rob. How are you? you.
1: Good. Thank you, Anita. It's great to be here.
0: Awesome. So I am really excited to, to dig deep into your work, um, starting with, I guess, the question, you've developed sort of the five steps to empathy. Could you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the genesis of needed recognizing that we needed the five steps came about god eight nine years ago um university of michigan came out with a study showing that there was a a meta-analysis of college life surveys from 1979 to 2009 found that there was a decline of about 40 percent in people's ability to have empathy with each other just for college students to see the point of view of their classmates and you know i saw that piece mentioned on cnn and they were like oh my gosh that's not good but nobody was talking about what to do about that. And then you'd start to hear, you know, cultural commentators talking about how we need more empathy. And you started to see the polarization in the United States of society and the red and the blue States and and everything there. And again, the call was going out on, we got to have some empathy. And we were even hearing it from our clients in corporate America. Like we want to go get empathy with our consumers. And so typically what was happening is everyone would go, OK, well, that means I need to go you know, live the way that they live. I need to eat the foods that they eat, watch the TV shows that they're watching. But it wasn't there's a gap. There's a huge gap between doing those activities and actually having empathy. You need to understand what's going on in your head and in your own heart that might be preventing you from getting to empathy. And what are the things you need to actually do? internally in order to when you have those experiences that you can actually have an empathetic experience and so understanding like okay there's a gap how do, how do we do this how do i do that as an empathetic individual myself and the work that we do where we're talking and listening to strangers and hearing their stories about how they're thinking and feeling and behaving around values and and day-to-day life Um, I was able to understand, start to think about how I was going through that and what I needed to do to make empathy, get to an empathy connection, but also how I was coaching my clients and helping them get to it as well, because they were wanting to build that, that bridge. And it was through that, that the five steps were born. It it started to just become pretty evident. Um, Judgment was the very first thing that that was getting in people's way. And the rest of it just kind of went from there.
0: So unpack what those five steps are. I mean, I don't know if you can use sort of a case study of an organization without naming them, but I'd be really keen to sort of really understand those better.
1: Sure. So um, the very first step, and I think the biggest hurdle that most people face is dismantling their judgment. Um, What ends up, you know, and, and there's, two different types of judgment, there's making a judgment, which is the like, Hmm, should I walk down that dark alley or not? You know, does that feel safe? Or what's the best decision that we need to make? That's, that's a form of judgment making. That's good. And then there's being judgmental, and that's the one that gets in the way of empathy. It's about the casting aspersions. I, In my presentations, I used to uh, show a picture of Michelle Yao's character in Crazy Rich Asians, because that's what she did all the time, was cast aspersion. She was being judgmental of her potential future daughter-in-law and, and everybody around her. And that's what hampers us and harms us. And, and judgment for folks comes from, and that what leads you to the point of actually casting aspersion, um, you know, it, it comes from your own biases. It comes from stereotypes that you may have or that society has had and embedded into your mind. Um, it comes from your past experiences, all of those things. And it's just constant and it's it's churning around, um, you know, and if you think back to, uh, us pre-civilization, you know, civilization, caveman sort of time, and we're tribal by nature and making judgments and identifying the other and keeping the other out was necessary for the survival of the tribe. What's happened now in the 20th century and into the 21st century is we've transcended the smaller definitions of tribe. And we are, I believe, moving towards a larger definition of the human tribe. And how do we get there? And that's where we're running into uh, tensions because we, we're having trouble getting, overcoming some of those barriers, those stereotypes that are ingrained in us that, oh, well, you're, you know, a Democrat, therefore you are this, or you're of this ethnicity or whatever the situation may be. Um, so dismantling judgment is the very first thing. And it, it so much of it is around awareness, of even having judgment. Um, And in my book, I talk about, I tell stories from my experiences going into people's homes, getting to know them and things that I needed to do to overcome um, uh, my own judgment. And then also help my clients. One of the stories I tell is a chapter entitled Fear," and it's about a, a project we did for a client where we got to go to the NRA gun show, uh, the National Rifle Association, to their annual huge massive gun show, to uh, talk to people about carrying and conceal of weapons. And I'm you know, I'm a gay white man living in San Francisco. I'm left of center. You know, I'm not an, an advocate of carrying guns, but was really fascinated to understand what would prompt people to to do that. And so, as I write in the book, what I found, and I use some um, excerpts from the conversations that I had with real people uh, to illustrate this, but it was all grounded in um, they weren't sure what was out there. They were afraid of the unknown of what might happen. Well, you know, I'm going into the city and that's not necessarily safe. So I want to be able to protect myself or my wife. And then I'd ask, well, how often are you going into the city? Uh, once every you know, year we live out in the suburbs. And it kind of made me question. And this is me being judgmental, but it's like, okay, well, how scary is that Olive Garden that you're going to, you know, for dinner? <laughs> um, and is this is this a real fear that you have? Is it grounded in what, what's it grounded in? What's it really rooted in? And over and over again, this notion of fear kept coming up. That was what was motivating people to carry a weapon with them. They were afraid of what could happen. We then moved on, um, left the NRA show. I did some focus groups uh, in Philadelphia. And we had a combination of, I remember it was a group of men, and we had, um, you know, if it was a group of eight, maybe, half were from the suburbs, I call them the Daves, and then the other half were more inner-city urban residents. And very different lived experiences between the two groups. And where the Daves were talking about, and again, I'm just using the, the Daves, like I'm being judgmental about them. But I'm also describing them and it's good for the story. Um but the guys from the suburbs, the Daves, again, the fear notions were coming up. It's a scary world, not sure what we're going to run into. And then I asked the guys that were from the inner city, um or the urban residents, and they had actual experiences and stories. And the barber guy worked at the barber shop who was like, "Yeah, we actually I have two guns, one that's on me and then one that's in the till." because, you know, after dark people come in and, you know, the ones that are looking for trouble and they got the hoodie up and all the things. And he explained it and that lived experience. Another guy told a story about walking down the street and having a car trail him that had some gang members or some group that he recognized was out to know for no good. He happened to have his gun with him, was able to like kind of lift up his jacket enough to reveal that he was carrying a weapon and that changed, you know, it prevented an an interaction from happening. And he was convinced that they were going to come and and do whatever, harm him, um, possibly kill him. So for the guys from the suburbs, like this is their worst, these are their worst fears, like, you know, brought to life, very different experiences that people have. Still concerned based on fear of bad things that could happen. One that's living in an environment where it does happen more often and is more common. And another where there's the possibility or they they are afraid of it. Mm -hmm. Fascinating stuff. And then got all the other learning that we were really there to, to get about carry conceal and how they do it and things that they choose to wear, accessories and whatnot. Come back to San Francisco. Have brunch with some friends who are also a gay couple, you know, San Francisco, lean to the left and bring up like, oh my God, I was at the NRA show. And then we went and did these focus groups and you wouldn't believe. And my friends started to talk about how they didn't feel that people should be carrying guns. And when I probed into it and we continued the conversation, it turned out, well, they're actually afraid as well. And my friends, their whole feeling was based on fear and they're afraid of what somebody with a gun is going to do and it, you know it could be that suburban dave or somebody in an inner city wherever they were just afraid of that so it's like all right so both sides are actually coming at this from a place of fear if we were able to have a conversation understanding that and having empathy with each other that we're just afraid of what could be and of what the other side what what their fears are, you could do a lot to um, dissuade that fear to to dissolve it and make them feel more comfortable
0: you know what i 'm going to just say in response to everything you 've just shared is that I think empathy is super subversive, and you know we would not have the gun sales that we have if there was more empathy in the world that 's what you're describing right. So, uh, so fascinating.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and the, the power that empathy can have to get you to that point of understanding. But had I not dismantled my own judgment, had I not faced my discomfort of being, you know, in, I mean, the gun show was in St. Louis. That's a pretty red area um, with, you know, people that are gun owners. That's a pretty Republican, right, leaning I was feeling threatened Um, Mm. for no reason. Nobody threatened me, but I just felt uncomfortable. And so that was, I was putting up walls of judgment to protect myself. Had I not been able to dismantle that and step out of it, I wouldn't have heard what they were really saying and gotten to that deeper level of understanding. And so that's dismantling judgment is the first step, which then enables you to ask good questions, which is the the second step. Mm. And that's about asking open-ended questions. So not challenging people with why um, or, you know, a closed question is like a yes, no, maybe like if you can give a one word answer to a question that's usually a sign of a closed question. Nobody's going to be able to explain their position if you're just giving them the choice of yes, no, or maybe Mm -hmm. you want to be able to hear where people are coming from and what they're all about that's what helps you build empathy with them. So. Asking an open question, an exploratory question. Uh, I tell a story in the book about a woman that we met uh, who's living in Alabama. And we pulled up to her house. It was an in-home interview. We pulled up to her house. Um, and she was actually outside tending to uh, a, her dog and the litter of puppies that the dog had had. And we hop out. We're grabbing our stuff and just say, hey, how are you? And she started, you know, more than just the usual, oh, I'm good. Um, uh, Emma Jean is her name. She's a natural storyteller. And she just went into her story and started telling us all of these things because I asked this very open question. I just said, how are you? How are you doing? And I find that that's something that's missing as well for a lot of people, and especially in the environment we've been living in. With the pandemic and and all of the events the social unrest and unjust injustice that we've been struggling with for the you know since the beginning of 2020 we're not taking the time to just ask how are you and really check in and to comfort each other and to listen uh, and to be open to what people have to say and to receive that but you need to be able to do that in order to build empathy so asking good questions are questions that are going to be exploratory in nature. I also always say, and I learned this uh, when I was trained to become a moderator, never to use the word why when you're asking people questions, because why puts people on the defensive? Mm-hmm. Because when, you know, from the time that they were a child, the parent or somebody in a place of authority would say, why exactly why did you draw on the wall? Why did you cut your sister's hair? Why did you do this? Why did you do that? And it continues into adulthood. Why are you constantly late to work? Why is that report not ready? Why did you you know, do this, do that? You're always just on the defensive. Your reaction to it is defensive. It's not going to open you up to get to a real exploration and an understanding of what's going on so when you're trying to connect with somebody to have empathy with somebody you need to ask good questions and they need to be broad and exploratory and, and non-threatening
0: good So, we've covered two you ready for the other three
1: we can go through the other three uh third one is actively listen mm-hmm. active listening isn't just about your ears and the words that you're hearing but it's about what else you're sensing and what you're seeing and what you're taking in in the environment. So, um, one of my favorite stories um, there was an a in home that we went into, and the asked, you know, kind of opening question of, you know, hi, you know, introduce yourself, what's going on in your life? And he started talking about his nephew, uh, respondent's name is Jonathan. He started talking about his nephew that had passed away. And only I think a month earlier, perhaps, so it was still really raw. The nephew was in his um, early mid twenties, uh, had Ewing sarcoma, um, had been battling that for about ten years, and finally, uh, through a, a, a recurrence, ended up uh, passing. And it really it affected Jonathan. It was like you know he, he he considered his nephews considers his nephews to be like his children, so it was it had that impact on him. And I was there to talk to him about soup and particularly canned soup. And when do you eat Campbell's or Progresso and why? And when somebody is in that level of pain, you're not going to have a really productive conversation about soup. (laughs) You need to unpack whatever is going on. So my intuition was telling me this, you know, just listening to him, paying attention to the nonverbal cues I was getting from him I knew and I could sense actually um, an energy kind of hovering above him that to me was almost like that, that's the nephew. Um, the nephew's energy is here and we need to let the nephew go just long enough for us to ultimately have a conversation about soup because that's what we're here to do and what I'm getting paid for. But before we do that, I need to to unpack all of this. And we spent Um, 30, 40 minutes talking about his nephew, talking about the impact that that had had on him and the journey that it had set him on um, in changing his life. So we got this really, um, you know, it was a beautiful expression from him of who he is and where he is on his journey on a project about soup. And it was because I was paying attention to the cues of what was going on. We need to be present effectively when we are having our conversations with people. So when you ask that good question, you're listening to the answer. You're picking up the cues of what somebody is really saying to you. Because they could say one thing, but their eyes could be communicating something else or their body language. Or you can pick up things from the environment that they're in that might tell you something more about the individual. So that's the third step. And then you get into the fourth step, integrate into understanding. When you're integrating into your understanding, the way I talk about this, and I can go back to the gun show as an example, it's like, I'm hearing why people like carrying a gun and it makes them feel safe, but I still don't care for guns and I still feel threatened by that. So how do I make space in my head, kind of pull my brain apart and go, okay, my value system is that guns are wrong, we shouldn't be carrying them. But I need to make the room to accept the point of view that, you know, hey, other people feel that that it is okay and it's acceptable and and that's all right. Like people have different ways of living their life. And so it's integrating into understanding is making room in your head to just accept the notion that there are other ways of thinking and feeling. Um, Something I've, I've found as I talk to people about empathy is that they are worried that they are going to have to sacrifice their own views, belief systems in order to have empathy with somebody else, because mm-hmm. it, they they think they're going to suddenly disappear and become this other person. And it's like, no, it's only about making room in your head to go that, Hey, I like chocolate ice cream. Other people like vanilla and that's okay. There's room for both. Um, there's just other ways of viewing the world. And then you want to try to understand why does that person like vanilla and what is it about vanilla that they enjoy so that you can then appreciate it, and have empathy with them. And the fifth and final step, once you've managed all of that and judgment keeps popping its head up, uh, like a, an ugly little troll that you need to just keep beating down and dismantling. Um, but the final step is then using your solution imagination and, That's then where you're really, um, you know, as they say, stepping into the shoes of somebody else, where you're really trying to see the world through their eyes. Um, One of my favorite stories in in my career, and that I cover in the book in that section, was actually we were in Toronto on a project talking to people about um, recent immigrants to Canada. And as an American from the United States, to me you know i would go oh okay you're talking to mexicans or people from one of the latin american countries which is our larger uh, largest uh, immigrant community canada that's not the case it's asian you know chinese and then uh, indian continent so we're in the home of one indian family a lovely couple and they i start that conversation with okay so the plane landed at pearson airport and then what happened because that's you know where they arrived <laughs> they got to the gta and it was like now what um and and you know yeah somebody picked them up and they walked me through their entire journey um what really struck me and what i highlight in the book uh this particular family they are hindi and you know obviously or not obviously to everybody but In the Hindu uh, religion, the cow is a sacred animal. So, okay, there's that piece of information. And then I start hearing about what it's like trying to get a job um, in Canada or as an immigrant arriving in any country where the education uh, certifications, qualifications aren't necessarily recognized. So this particular couple, the husband, I think was a civil engineer back in Mumbai and the wife was a teacher. And neither one of those uh, certifications would transfer. So the husband got a job working on the factory floor. And he had his whole adventures, you know, having to learn to sweep the floor and do the things that he was supervising when he was on construction sites. The wife, she ended up getting a job at Burger King. I was like, huh, okay. Burger King, flame broiled, Whopper, cow. Hindu, what would that be like? So I was using my solution imagination. I was trying to put myself into her shoes and think, what would that be like to flame broil the sacred symbol of my religion? And so I asked her um, to elaborate on that. But I was able to do that. I knew to do that because I was able to put myself into her shoes. Because I was able to think, wow, okay, in that experience, not only am I the newcomer, and so I'm in an unfamiliar country, but now I'm being asked to do something that's, you know, I would think against my religion to a certain extent. And so she um, talked about and opened up about how difficult it was. And when you started at Burger King, you were working on the the, um, broiler line. And, you know, there's all of the meat coming through. And sometimes the grease would like splatter up you know, onto your lips and trying not to, you know, ingest that and wipe it away instead and not think about it for what it was. And and fortunately she had some other colleagues who were also from India. So they were able to kind of support each other and and help each other out. But it also then drove her and motivated her to get out of the the kitchen area. And her husband um, worked with her to understand the Canadian... um, monetary system and the coins and dollars and and everything so that she was able to then go and work the cash register and she actually worked her way up to becoming the assistant manager at the burger king so you know it was a really fascinating journey but i was able to put myself into her shoes in order to get even more learning that was then relevant for, for us on that particular project. And so that's think, using solution imagination.
0: So now you've just given us the whole arc of those five steps to, to, to powerful empathy. Um, now, is this in your book and is your book intended for a business audience trying to do market research? Because I see the applicability of those five steps across the board.
1: It, yes, um, I'm so glad you asked that question. It is written for everybody. It's set in the exciting world of consumer insights and marketing research where I've had those experiences, so you get to come with me into one of the dirtiest homes that I've ever been in, you get to meet these wonderful people as I've been talking about, and many other stories but it's written for a general audience. Um, Mm -hmm. It is written because empathy is something that everybody can benefit from. And it has application in your personal life, as well as your professional life. It it, it comes up in every conversation Mm -hmm. we have, whether it's the clerk at the store or your boss.
0: Okay. So how has empathy been important in your life on a personal level?
1: Oh dear. Um, Empathy you know, I, I say that empathy is my superpower. I think I, we are all born with the ability to be empathetic. And I think every um, sentient being is actually born that way. I know some scientists have identified there's like seven animals that demonstrate empathy. But as I've thought about, it, I'm like, no, I kind of see it in other you know, if I watch enough nature documentaries, you can see empathy in a lot of ways where people are or, or creatures, sentient beings are caring and, and connecting with each other and working together and empathy fosters all of that. For myself, uh, the, the lightning bolt that hit me and, and unlocked that uh, superpower happened when I was growing up in Indiana in the Midwest of the United States, and I was in a very small town. We had just moved into that small town. Uh, We were outsiders I've got that strange sounding last name that's Italian, as they used to say. Um, And this was a town where everybody knew each other and had grown up together. And so being outside was, as I was talking about, from that tribal perspective, outsiders are bad. And so um, I st- one of the kids in the class decided, uh, A, decided that he and I were going to be in competition to be valedictorian someday, which in fifth grade, I was like, what's a valedictorian? Um, and then a week or so later, he announced to everybody that I was gay, to which I was also like, what's that? Mm-hmm. Um, and that caught on like wildfire. And I proceeded to get teased and bullied um, for quite a long time. Um, and it, that that went on for years. Um, and so empathy kicked in for me as in a few different ways. One was how I, it became a survival skill. So I could use empathy, understanding other people's perspective, not, I, I couldn't get into their, Shoes or into their minds enough to understand why they were picking on me, but I could find out other things about their life so that I could um navigate and and survive like i I was able to figure out the kind of cycle of rumors and how rumors get started, and you know it's worse to have a rumor start at the beginning of the week when you've got to survive the entire school week. But if it happens on a Thursday or a Friday, nah, I can kind of make it through that, and then the weekend'll come everybody will reset. And we start all over on Monday, typically. Um, I was figuring those things out at fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. Um, and but empathy was helping me survive. I remember a conversation in ninth, it was ninth or 10th grade, maybe, where um, there was a girl in my class who, I don't, and we were from a very different class, I would say she was more in the or whatever cast you would describe, the druggies or the hoods or whatever the the term is that you would use. But of Judd Nelson's character in Breakfast Club, probably. Mm -hmm. She was in that Mm -hmm. crowd. And I I don't know, we started talking about what you do last night. And I probably watched sitcoms on TV. And she told me about how she drank a fifth of Everclear, which is basically grain alcohol. And I would never had a drop of alcohol in my life at that point, but it was like, oh, tell me more, tell me more about that. What was that like? I've never had that. And I used that to get to know her a bit better. Um, so that then by me having empathy with her, she would hopefully not, she would have more positive regard for me. Mm-hmm. So that then therefore, when the rumors got started, when you know, inevitably they would she wouldn't necessarily engage in spreading them because she knew a little bit more about me or we would mm-hmm. made that connection or she felt supported and connected to me empathetically mm-hmm. so that's how empathy kind of got going for me and then you know I've continued to use it throughout my life and now I'm in a career where that's what we do is we build empathy with people and help our clients connect with them and um and then I get to coach the five steps uh with our audiences as
0: well. Beautiful. Um, do you see any limits in your life to empathy? Or are there times when you can't empathize or what are your blockages?
1: Ooh, good question. Um, and you know, I, I, I say in the book quite a few times, and I will admit, I am not perfect. I am human. And judgment comes out and can get the bet. You too, yes, amen, amen. And, and I think that's so important. Like we need to be forgiving of ourselves but we have to keep trying. We can't give up. And so for me, empathy, as I talk about it, like it's really hard to have empathy with the kind of emotional extremes. So on one side, you've got love. And, you know, I kind of use the example, you know, that time where either you or maybe your friend was so crazy in love with somebody that it was irrational and you could not figure out what they saw in that person. That's an example of not being able to have cognitive empathy with somebody. It's like, you are just so crazy in love. On the other side is hate. And that also irrational emotion that takes people to extremes. It's very difficult to try to have empathy with somebody with an active hatred. What you can do is try to understand the conditions and the environment in which they maybe grew up in or came from so that you can then maybe not necessarily work with that individual, but maybe help prevent the situation from happening again in the future. Um, you know, and I use um, the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis last year and Derek Chauvin, I-, I can't understand what was going through his head, nor am I going to even try But what was the environment, whether it was in the police department or in his upbringing that led him to feel like that was okay. And that was okay behavior, and by understanding and having empathy with that, then we can do something to maybe correct the the situation so that it doesn't happen
0: again-hmm so is this for you? Are you on a personal mission to bring more empathy out into the world? This book seems to be a bit of an offering and a gift. am I catching on to something
1: that's yes, absolutely this is this is um this is who I am. This is what I am all about. And it is an expression of my life thus far. Um, And so, uh, yeah, it is a a gift uh, to the world. Um, You know, to me, I'm a practitioner of empathy and I'm very fortunate to be able to express and share my story. And then hopefully others will learn from it um, and be able to, to, you know, grow in their own lives and, be more empathetic, and I think together that'll help make the world a better place.
0: You're here, Rob as a last question, and thank you so much for spending part of your afternoon with uh, with me and anyone listening and watching. Um, I love asking my guests at the end of the show when they an experience that they've had when they're on the receiving end of empathy, uh, and what that has meant for them. Can sure. somebody, Does anything to come to mind?
1: The first thing that comes to my mind, um, and I was talking about what happened when I was growing up, and I I still go to my high school reunions. I've always, uh, you know, I identify that I grew up in Indiana. It's where I am from. There's some, you know, it, it's just part of my being. So I never deny it. I went to my fifth year high school reunion. So that would have been 1992. And... One of my classmates came up to me and he said to me, he's like, you know, a lot of people are really surprised that you're here. And I was like, well, what do you mean? (laughs) And he was like, you weren't treated very well. Mm -hmm. And people are really surprised that you came back. Mm -hmm. And that to me, I mean, I felt like, um, you know, the, the checkered flag at the end of the race was being waved because he was having empathy with me and he had the courage and, and was brave enough to acknowledge to me that I had been hurt by my classmates Mm -hmm. um, and that he recognized that. And, and that meant a great deal. So there was some empathetic connection, but more importantly, there was some empathetic repair that -hmm. happened. Mm -hmm. So that made me feel better Um, And helped me in my own journey towards healing and, um, and ultimately to forgiveness. And I closed the book talking about how I got to forgiveness um, with my classmates for what happened and the realizations that I had at another high school reunion. So, yeah, it's not just about being empathetic, but when somebody is empathetic towards you, it's a wonderful feeling.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it stays with you. Um, I certainly feel sort of like the gravitas of, of that conversation. And it makes me think I've heard, you know, I'm I'm writing a book, too. And uh, people have said to me, sometimes you write the book you need to read. Um, and it sounds like this book for you, I, I, I could be wrong about this, was a bit of a healing journey as well. Is, oh. is that true?
1: absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, I started it and I did honestly start it as a business book. It is not that, but I started it as a business book and I kind of read the early draft and I was just like, ugh, I don't like this. I wouldn't want to read this. And I continued to get um, some counsel from some healers that I work with that were just like, put more of yourself into it. Mm -hmm. And so I continued to do that and more and more. And as I was opening up and exploring my own reactions to those situations, you know, at the gun show or with other people, The Dirtiest House uh, and and some other situations in the book, it really did help me understand myself better. And I think I write in a very honest um, and forthcoming way of this this was what my experience was. And at the end of every chapter, I have um, what I call empathetic reflections. And so they're just things for people to think about related to the content of that chapter and that step um, for them to, to think about for their own journey and their own abilities to have empathy. So yes, Beautiful. Very, much, very much a healing journey.
0: If I had a copy, I would hold it up now, but I'll just say, tell me more about that. Solving the empathy crisis. One conversation at a time. I look forward to reading it. Thank you so much for, for spending part of your afternoon, Rob, with, uh, with all of us and yeah. Um good luck
1: awesome thank you anita and good luck with your book too i can't wait to see that one come out (laughs) me
0: too (laughs) my (laughs) husband too (gasps) thanks everyone for joining we'll see you next time at purposeful empathy what if you had access to your own council of coaches to help you break free from your thinking clutter or make an important decision liberate you from whatever's holding you back. At Grand Huron International, you get to choose the coach of your choice from any place, any time. Visit grandheroninternational.com and harness the power of on-demand coaching today.